Chapter Four of Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirty Two Caliber by Donald McGibney. Chapter Four The Worst Happens. I was late getting down to the office the next morning, for I had gone back to Jim's and talked until all hours. It seemed that my instructions to Wicks to tell Annie to stay with Helen had been taken quite literally by the estimable pair for when helen had told the girl to leave she had refused saying that mr felderson had ordered her to stay that was what precipitated the quarrel even when i left jim to go to bed i had heard him walking back and forth in his room and once during the night i heard him shut his door thinking perhaps he might want to talk to me i went to the door and knocked jim was untying his shoes and explained that unable to sleep he had gone out for a walk. The clock on the mantelpiece showed half-past four. In spite of the fact that he had practically no sleep the night before, he was down at his usual hour, nine o'clock, and when I went into his office to see him, there was no sign of fatigue on his face. "'Any news?' I inquired. "'This may interest you,' and he tossed over the morning paper, folded to an article on the first page. "'Zalnik freed.' Governor Fallon pardons man implicated in Yellow Pier explosion. Prisoner upon release makes terrific indictment against those responsible for his imprisonment. I glanced hurriedly down the long article. One paragraph in particular caught my eye. It was part of a quotation from Zalnik's speech to the reporters. Those who were responsible for my imprisonment may well regret the fact that justice has at last been given me. I shall not rest until I lay before the working classes the extent to which the processes of law can be distorted in this state, and rouse them to overthrow and drive out those who have the power of depriving them of their rights and their liberty. I shall not rest until I see a full meed of punishment brought to those who have punished me and hundreds like me. Their money and their high position will not help them to escape a just retribution. It looks as though our friend was going to have a very restless time, I commented, after reading the passage aloud to Jim. Vengeance is mine, saith Zalnik. Jim's eyes twinkled. You're not afraid of him, are you, Jim? I asked. No more now than ever, Bupps. His face suddenly clouded over. Wouldn't it clear the air, though, if they did carry out their funny little threats and put me out of the way? When I think of some of the things Helen has said to me during the last month, I almost wish they would. That sounds weak and silly, I scoffed. Not a bit like you, Jem. Cheer up. Give Helen a divorce and let her go. She's not worth all this heartache. Jim sat for a moment, thinking. You don't know what this has done to me, Bupps. It's not as though divorcing Helen would have straightened the whole matter out. Ever since I've known Helen, I've idolized her, foolishly, perhaps. She has been the one big thing worth working for, the thing I've built my whole life around. I've got to fight for her, Bupps. I can't let her smash my ideals all to pieces. I've got to make her live up to what I always believed her to be. The tone of the man, the dead seriousness of his words, 
made me want to disown Helen and then kill Woods. I left the room with my eyes a bit misty and did my best, in the case I was working on, to forget. For two days I was kept so busy I hardly saw Jim, except when I had to go into his office for papers, or to consult an authority. I was trying to win a case against the L.L.N.G. Railroad, and though I knew my client could never pay me a decent fee, even if I should win, I was pitted against some of the best lawyers in the state, and was anxious for the prestige that a verdict in my favor would give me. The case was going my way, or it seemed to be, but the opposition was fighting harder every day, so that I had time for little else than sleep, work, and food. Frank Woods had apparently left town, either on business or to give Helen a clear field to influence Jim. Helen was still at Mary's, and her presence on a visit there was so natural that it hid her separation from Jim better than if she had gone home to Mother. I was just leaving for court one morning when Jim called me into his office. There was a gleam of triumph in his eyes, and his whole attitude was one of cheerful excitement. "'Have you a minute, Bups?' "'Only a minute, Jim. This is the day of days for me.' There were several letters and telegrams lying on the table. Jim pointed exultantly to them and cried, "'I've got him, Bups. There is enough evidence there to send Woods up for twenty years.' I wouldn't have used such underhanded methods against anything but a snake, but I had to win. I had to win. I rushed to the table and rapidly scanned one of the telegrams. You started at the wrong end, but it doesn't matter. Frank Woods has used the money entrusted him by the French government to gamble with. He counted on the contracts with the international biplane people to bring him clean, and leave him a comfortable fortune besides. The end of the war and the wholesale cancellation of government contracts killed that. To cover his deficits, he borrowed from the capital loan and trust, and they are hunting for their money now. How did you find all this out, Jim? I demanded breathlessly. From friends, good friends, Bups, men who knew that if I asked for this unusual information I had need of it, and that I wouldn't abuse their confidence. And now that you've got it, what are you going to do with it? I have sent messages to Woods, to his apartment, to the club, and to the international plant, saying that I want to see him. I know he is working like the devil to get the contracts to furnish the government with mail planes for next year. If he gets that contract, he may possibly pull through, for the bank would probably extend his credit but if knowledge of his illegal use of the money entrusted to him by the French government ever gets out, he knows it's the stripes without the stars for him. "'Be careful when you meet with him, Jim,' I warned. "'He'll go to the limit, you know, to save himself.' "'He's all front bups, just like Zalnik. "'I'll give him three days to straighten out his affairs and get away. "'If he hasn't left by then,' I'll put all the evidence I have into the hands of the capital loan and trust. Are you going to tell Helen about this? I asked. Jim pondered a moment. I haven't decided that yet. If I was sure Woods would go away without any trouble, I think I'd leave her in ignorance, but he might use her to save himself. How do you mean? 
I'm not so blind that I can't see that Helen's infatuated with the man. If he is blackguard enough to ask her again to go with him, I think she would go, and that would pretty much effectively tie my hands. You mean that for Helen's sake you wouldn't prosecute Woods, I demanded? That's stupid sentimentality. It's for Helen's sake that I'm doing all this, Jim insisted. Don't think for a moment I would stop the prosecution just because she was with him. The reason my hands would be tied is because Helen's money would pay his obligations. Helen's money, I laughed. Helen hasn't as much as I have. Jim flushed. Helen is quite a wealthy woman, Bupps. When I went into the army, I wanted to leave Helen perfectly easy in a financial way while I was gone. So I transferred all my railroad stock to her, so that she might draw the interest. I haven't asked her for it since I came home, because in the light of our recent differences, I was afraid she might think I didn't trust her. And do you suppose Woods knows that? Of course he knows it, Jim burst out. She must have told him. Why do you suppose he played around so long before he decided to make love to Helen? Oh, it's all so simple and clear to me now that I wonder at my stupidity. I glanced at my watch. Good Lord, Jim, you've almost made me lose my case. I have only three minutes to get to the courthouse. Hold up the climax till I get back, if you can. I jumped for the elevator and rushed to my appointment, getting there just in time. The news of the morning had so raised my spirits that I was filled with an immense enthusiasm. Everything went my way. My summing up was a masterpiece of logic, if I do say so myself, and my client received a substantial judgment. There is no moment sweeter in a young lawyer's life than when another lawyer, of big reputation, congratulates him on his conduct of a case. My cup was filled to overflowing, and I must confess, I had little thought for Jim's affairs when I lunched that day with Stevenson and McGuire, counsels for the LL&G. The prognostications that they made for my future were so exaggerated that a bigger man than I might well have been excused for increased head and chest measurements. At half-past two I went back to the office to announce the good news to Jim. I had made up my mind before luncheon to spend the afternoon on the links in honor of my victory. But the clouds, which had been heavy during the morning, by two o'clock opened up a steady drizzle. Jim was at his desk when I came in, bringing the glad tidings. He got up and gripped my hand. "'Good boy, Bupps. I knew you'd do it. Thank the Lord your affairs are going well, anyway.' "'Has something happened since I've been out?' I asked." Yes. The First National telephoned about eleven o'clock, saying that Helen wanted to borrow quite a large sum of money on her railroad stock, and asking if I knew about it. They thought the money was probably for me, and they wanted to ask if I'd be willing to wait a few days. How much was it? Fifty thousand dollars. Is the stock worth that much, Jim? Yes, said Jim seriously. The stock is worth twice that. That's why I have to go slow. She could sell that stock for 50000 at any broker's in five minutes. I whistled. Gee, 50000 
Woods must have asked her for it because he knew you were after him. It's open warfare now. I told the bank I knew what the money was for, and that it would cause no inconvenience for me to have them hold up the loan for a few days. In fact, I asked Sherwood, the cashier, to wait until he saw me before making the loan. Just then the telephone rang. Jim answered it. Hello? Yes. Woods? Where are you now? He listened a moment. I understand. 8.30 promptly? I'll be there, yes. I understand. I'll be there. He hung up the receiver and looked at me with twinkling eyes. The shoe is beginning to pinch, Bupps. That was Woods. He asked me to meet him alone this evening at the country club at 8.30 promptly. He says that he wants to see me urgently on business that concerns us both. Did he ask you to come alone? Yes. He distinctly said that I was to come alone and be prompt. Jim, I argued, you can't go out there alone to meet that man. It's too infernally dangerous. There's no danger, Bupps, and I'm not going alone. Helen is going with me. He opened the bottom drawer of his desk and pulled out a leather portfolio, into which he put all of the letters and telegrams that were scattered about his desk. I'm going to prove to Helen in his presence what kind of a man he is, that he loves her only for the money I can give her, and to save his yellow hide. I'm going to tear out of her heart all the affection she ever had for him. I think after that she will not only come back to me, but she will love me all the more for having known Frank Woods. No matter how badly a leg or an arm may be shattered, a quick clean operation may cause the parts to grow together again, stronger than they were before. I think I win, Bupps. Still, I believe you ought to carry a gun in case he gets nasty. I will, if you like, he responded, but I won't use it, no matter what happens. I left the office, vaguely disquieted with the thought of Jim going out to the club, to face a man as dangerous and desperate as Frank Woods. When a fellow of his standing sees the penitentiary looming up his foreground, he's capable of anything. Helen herself, in the crazed condition I had seen her the other night, was an added element of danger. I didn't like the looks of the situation. Anyway, I turned it. I climbed into my car and drove slowly through the wet, slippery streets. The windshield was so covered with raindrops that I lowered it to see the better, and the autumn rain beating into my face soon swept away my gloomy forebodings. After all, no man was going to stick his neck into the hangman's noose, no matter how eager he was for revenge. This was the twentieth century, in which no man could deliberately flout the law. Frank Woods would never invite Jim to a rendezvous so public as the country club, if he was planning mischief. When he found out how much Jim knew, realizing the game was up, he would leave town quietly. Helen certainly would shake Woods when she learned of his dishonesty and trickery. Surely no woman with Helen's pride could learn how she had been duped without hating the man who duped her. I stopped at the University Union and found the card room well filled with bridge players. The rainy afternoon had driven the golfers to cards, 
and, as one of the men, Terry O'Connell, was on the point of leaving, I took his place. I played till seven and then started home to dinner. The rain had stopped, and a fresh chilly wind was rippling the pools in the streets and rapidly drying the sidewalks. The prospect of a cold, blustery evening made me look forward with pleasure to the warm comfort of my study and a good book. I had just finished a solitary dinner, mother being confined to her room, and had settled down in dressing-gown and slippers before my cheerful fire when the telephone rang. I put down my book and tried to think of some excuse for staying home, in case it was my bridge-playing friends of the afternoon wanting me to come back to the club. A strange voice called from the other end of the wire. "'Mr. Thompson?' "'Yes.' "'There has been an accident to your brother-in-law's car.' "'What? Where? Who is this talking?' I shouted breathlessly. "'This is Captain Wadsworth of the North District Police Station speaking. "'Your brother-in-law has had a very bad accident with his car "'at the second bridge on the Blandsville Road. "'Both Mr. and Mrs. Felderson were pretty badly injured. "'Where are they now?' I gasped, fear clutching at my throat." They've been taken to St. Mary's Hospital. I slammed on the receiver and tore into my clothes. I ran out to the car and drove through the dark, wet streets, regardless of speed laws. From out of the gray gloom, the heavy bulk and lighted windows of St. Mary's loomed just ahead. I ran up the steps and went at once to the office. Three nurses were standing there talking. Can you tell me where they have taken Mr. and Mrs. Felderson? Were they the people in the automobile accident? I nodded my head. One of the nurses led me to a large room on the second floor. As we neared the door, a young intern, so the nurse told me, came out. He was thoughtfully polishing his glasses. I am Warren Thompson, Mr. Felderson's brother-in-law, I explained. Can you tell me how bad Mr. and Mrs. Felderson were hurt? He put his glasses back on his nose and looked at me sympathetically. Mr. Felderson is dead, and Mrs. Felderson is dying, he said. End of chapter 4